0: out our salvation uh, with fear and trembling. And so we're going to pick up the narrative where we left off two weeks ago, and we do so by looking at this second part of this Je- of Jesus' vine branch teaching in John, John 15. So in case you're wondering why we're doing a series in Philippians, but like these past couple of weeks we've been in John, prior to this we've been all over the Bible, uh, I want to give you the theological logic behind this. This is kind of a one-sentence statement that Paul gives us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he kind of moves on. Uh, And there's a lot of implication in what that actually looks like in our lives, the practical application of what that means. So what we've been doing each week is looking at that root command and then going to other places in the Bible that actually give us clarity on what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's the reason that we're going to continue to look at uh, John 15 today, this great parable from Jesus about God being a master gardener, Jesus, his son being the vine and we being his, uh, his branches. So these passages of scripture give us the, the kind of nut and bolt understanding of what, of what God does in our lives. And this whole series, or at least this section of Philippians, has really been uh, synonymous with what life change looks like. That's what working out your salvation with fear and trembling means. It means that who you are today, as this process takes place in your life, you should begin to look more like Jesus tomorrow and for the rest of your days. And so uh, that is the root of life change in the Christian faith change in Christianity, all life change, is connected to becoming more like Christ. That is the end game of what it means to follow Jesus. And so you might say there's a particular object to our change, and it is to be further fashioned into the image of God's Son in this parable, the vine. So two weeks ago, a quick recap since we kind of jumped a week and I wasn't here last week. Two weeks ago, Jesus told us that anyone seeking genuine, lasting life change could find it by turning to him and connecting their hearts to the power of his life or vine. And he used this illustration of him being a vine and we being these branches connected to the vine. And the, one of the marks that Jesus is vitally alive in us, I would go so far as to say it is an indelible mark of us being connected to Jesus, is when our character is transformed into his, into Jesus' image. What Jesus called fruit. And this is not the only, other place, in, the only place in the Bible that talks about uh, fruit. Galatians addresses fruit. We're actually going to look at some of that stuff next week. But the general idea here is that Jesus says, something should happen in your life when I'm in your life. And we also learn that we will will never experience the kind of lasting fruit Jesus talks about unless we make it a priority to remain in his word and love. And so what he was saying was, at least in the foundation of how we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, is if you want to know Jesus, if you want to grow in Jesus, then you have to remain connected to the truth of who Jesus is in the scripture and you have to abide in his love. When you disconnect yourself from one of those two things or both of those things, you are very likely going to begin embracing some type of a faith that might actually not be the type of faith Jesus prescribes to us in the scripture. And so there's a responsibility that both God has to us and we have to us when it comes to the process of change. Today, we're going to study uh, the role of the third character in the story, the gardener. Two weeks ago, we really looked at some of the responsibilities the branches have, us. And that's on the web. So if you haven't heard that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. We really looked at the responsibility of the branch. And that's important because in this teaching of working out your salvation with fear and trembling, there's two agents working here. Ultimately, all change in life is brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the truth is that God gives us things to do. He, he asks us to embrace what we would have said probably 15 years ago. We would call these the spiritual disciplines. The things that we invest our time, energy, and efforts into. Studying the word, praying, being in, in a local community, serving Jesus on his mission. There is a responsibility we have that God brings change about through. We talked about that. This week, we're going to talk about the nature of the gardener. What is God's role in the change process, more specifically? And Scripture teaches us that ultimately... All fruit. And this makes perfect sense. If you're going to be like Jesus, it would make sense that God, our Father in heaven, and his Son would actually have the ultimate authority to make us like Jesus. So ultimately, God is the agent that brings us into this this relationship with Christ and certainly helps us to become more like him. And one of the things that Jesus tells us he does is pruning. In other words, he's saying, listen, one of the ways you become like me is, is by being pruned by my Father in Heaven, the gardener. The branches at time need a little clipping. So I want to open with you. I'm going to share two stories this morning. Uh, the first one is one I shared in the very early days of restoration. Um, I don't even know if you remember this, but if you don't, here's a refresher on it. Um, when, when I was a kid, this is kind of a good analogy of, what, of how people understand this theological concept, God snipping away things in your life to help you become more vibrant and healthy. Uh, when I was a kid... Uh, I remember a lot growing up. Uh, I, I'm a, a Gen Xer. I just turned 40, a latchkey kid, basically, by elementary or, or junior high school. I was The norm was, you know, you got a key, and you were just kind of home alone. And so uh, we, we grew up, my brother and I, um, in, a, in, a, in a great home. I mean, don't get me wrong. We had our challenges, but I remember my mom and dad um, – They both were working. I I couldn't obviously regurgitate this to you when I was an infant, but when I was old enough to remember, I remember my mom telling me that they made a conscious decision. My father's, uh, a blue-collar laborer, dropped out of school in sixth grade. He's like a typical son of an immigrant, Italian-American story, worked his whole life. Uh, my mom married him. Uh, what a dynamic. It's kind of an Italian-Irish relationship. It's, it's an interesting dynamic. It could be a sitcom. No joke, I'm telling you. It's, my wife's laughing because she knows the pain of what it means to be an orzo. But <clears throat> my, mom, my mom told me that when, when we were small, she decided to stop working. Um, And and we lived in New York City in South Brooklyn. And she just basically raised my brother and I until we made her go back to work. In those days, it was actually legal to leave your sixth or fifth grader home. And I remember I remember that happening. And so one of the interesting things that happened was uh, my mom, uh, as, as a result of this, my mom spent a lot of time at home with us. <clears throat> and our household although it was never a very affluent household it went from like sort of a lower middle class household to like what i would consider or what the science would consider a working poor home and so to to stay sane while raising us and even to generate a little additional income my mom took up this hobby called needlepoint it was like the it was like the thing in the 80s i don't know if you remember that some of you were like 80s when is that uh, well that was just a few decades ago and it was an interesting season in the culture of our country and so needlepoint was this interesting like crafting stitching hobby <clears throat> where you would buy these very thick pieces of graph paper like thick plastic graph paper and you would then sew certain colors and strains and all this stuff you, you would stitch this stuff through to make images and what was interesting was it created a little bit of revenue for our family. My mother was so good at it that people started buying the stuff. Like, everywhere I went, there was a magnetic needlepoint something around our house that she was, like, selling on the street corner the next day. And so, uh, as a kid, I watched her stitch this stuff all the time. And what always stood out to me was the stark difference between the front and the back of those, uh, those canvases. I'm going to have to ask you to bear with me this morning. I'm dealing with a little bit of a, of a chest cold. So the back side was a total mess. Okay? If you would look at the underside of a needlepoint canvas, it was nothing but strings and knots. It, it, was, it looked like a train wreck. But when you would flip it over, the, the visible side, the side that you would display of the, of the needlepoint, actually had an identifiable image in it. And so there's an interesting kind of analogy here that we can apply to this. The way you look at that canvas determines whether or not you can see the value, purpose, and meaning of the work. One side of it looks like a complete mess. You would question every single thing going on there. Because it doesn't make any sense. Why is it not here? Why does this line go that way? Why are there four lines here and nothing here? It doesn't make any sense. But if you were to flip it over, you would see that all that underpinning, all that kind of behind-the-scenes work is actually creating something. And in this case, it's creating a visible image. It's kind of bringing life to something that didn't exist. And so God's pruning grace is much like this needlepoint. Life change in the way God works in our lives is almost exactly like this needlepoint. If we think about our lives, sometimes especially in the heat of the moment— Uh, If we truly understand this concept or maybe this is the first time you're dealing with it, there are times when the way God is working or the way our lives are panning out, they don't seem like a beautiful image. They actually feel like painful knots, uh, random strings and all kinds of disconnected stuff going on. This is the reality of what it's like to be pruned at times. Sometimes we don't understand why God is removing things from our lives, why he's snipping things here and there. But our passage shows us that from God's perspective, he's always stitching a good and perfect picture for our life when he does. Very sorry. So your perspective in this matter will really determine whether you see God's pruning as a marker of his love or an opportunity to drive a deeper wedge in between you and his love. My challenge for you this morning is when we talk about this subject, you're going to see it in one of two ways. You're going to see it as a bunch of stitched up, messed up, jacked up knots that don't make any sense, which likely will breed a bit of bitterness towards God. Or you will learn to see things through God's economy. And that is to recognize that no matter what it looks like or even feels like at times, God is actually always working towards our good and and his glory. And so the foundation of life change, at least the one we're talking about today, is, is wrapped up in this concept of pruning. And I want to open by saying this. The first, first big idea I want to share with you this morning is that one of the marks of God's love for you is that he commits to prune your life to bring about the fruit of Christ. One of the ways the branches have life is by God making a commitment to prune us. John 15one through 3 I am the true vine, and, the, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So right there is all that language. Gardener, God, Jesus, the vine, and this kind of snipping thing that goes on to bring about life change. Here Jesus tells us his father loves the vine and the branches so much that he tends uh, to, to it so that it produces maximum fruit. In other words, the idea here is that pruning fundamentally is a mark of God's love. And the love is designed to help us stay true to the commitment we made to follow Jesus. And if you think about this, this, this analogy makes perfect sense. Um, vine tending or gardening are what science calls viticulture. And it's this ancient art that is still practiced all over the world today. And if you have a little yard, you do the same thing. <clears throat> Grape crops are perhaps the most common way that we can see this in our modern culture today. Uh, it's this idea of pruning back stuff that is not necessarily healthy in order to create excessive health and what still lives and so in short viticulturists they do a few things they plow ground they plant seeds they water crops and they wait patiently on crops to grow when when the crops do grow they harvest them and then they prune all the dead and dying branches back to preserve the future crops health so remember this is an agrarian society jesus is not dealing with skyscrapers and uh... you know the the kind of industrial global economic thing we deal with today in our world He's dealing with people largely committed to farming. Okay? So it makes perfect sense that he's using farming analogies to begin explaining very deep and significant kingdom truths. All of this is done, right? this whole pruning process in the agrarian culture is done to nurture the crop to long-standing health. And so it, it bears its fruit for as long as it lives. And all throughout the Bible, uh, this analogy is used. Vine tending is one of the most common metaphors God uses to explain the kind of relationship that he has with us And us with him. One of the best examples of this is found in Isaiah 5, which I'll read to you here in a moment. But before I do that, I want to say that a great many people have a hard time with this passage or this concept that we're talking about today, because the idea of being pruned by God can very well be viewed as a calloused, unloving action. Because sometimes God snips away things that we think we might actually need, or maybe things that we are emotively bought into. And that is a painful removal. So we can see this as calloused. However, in this passage that we're going to read, much like the one we just read, God calls Israel uh, his vineyard, like we talked about two weeks ago. I, I mentioned, theologically speaking, that the vineyard, up until the New Testament in Christ's coming, the vineyard was Israel. Now the, the vine and the branches are the New Testament church. Jesus' life is displayed to the world through us, right? So you have this, this analogy of the vineyard. And in the Old Testament, to kind of prove that point... We see God speaking about his people as a vineyard. And there's these these consequences that take place. God, God actually says in Isaiah that one of the punishments, the punishment isn't being pruned. The punishment is what happens when God walks away from the actual vineyard. In other words, when he stops interacting with us like this, it's a sign that <clears throat> that that something is wrong, that we're walking away from God, or maybe we're very far from him, that he's for a season said, Listen, Okay, I see there's tons of rejection here, and you're stepping away from me. One of the realities here is I'm going to stop this. Isaiah 5, 7 says this, to the contrary of what we often think about with pruning. I will make you Israel a wasteland. He's speaking at this point to a disobedient Israel. I will make you Israel a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. So I just want to say that the punishment, if you will, if you, if you even view it this way, the callousness made up word, is not in the sense that God prunes, but it's in, it's in the reality of what happens when we harden ourselves so much to God that he just stops. We've already said Jesus' main point in this parable was to show us that authentic Christianity is always marked by the fruit of the vine, displayed in the lives of the branches. And we used Galatians 5, 22-23, which we'll unpack over these next couple of weeks, to see what this fruit looks like. Patience, you know, uh, long-suffering, gentleness, self-control, respect, the fruit of the Spirit, right? We we talked a few weeks ago about what fruit looks like. But today we ask a different question based on what Jesus says. What does the mark of a dead or fruitless branch that God must prune look like? We have to know both sides of the fence. If you want to take care of a bush in your yard, you have to understand... <clears throat> what is necessary to help it live and what is necessary uh, to, to remove, because otherwise you might start snipping the wrong things. So fruitless branches are people who have, I mean, generally speaking, they have a ritual relationship with Jesus, but not one that draws life from his vine. When we speak here, we're actually talking about people who have some type of affinity or relationship with God. We're not talking about the unbelieving world in this passage, um, at least not yet. In, in this passage, Jesus tells us the defining mark of a Christian... Who has truly experienced the power of Christ's vine is when you want to remain in the presence of And so, what he's saying here is this idea of, of remaining in God's love is an evidence that we actually are in God. We want to find a permanent home in His love, in His word, in His teachings, around His people. Wherever God is, here's a simple way to describe this wherever God is, and, what, and in whatever way He's choosing to work, you and I should want to be in that, that place. That's what it means to remain in God. So you don't have to be like a Bible scholar. You don't have to be the greatest missionary on earth. You just have to be a person who says, God is here, and I want to be here with him. Okay? So we want to grow in the image of Jesus. We want to be changed into the image of Jesus. Simply put, we want to be with Jesus. The branch wants to stay connected to the vine. And even though this makes a lot of sense, lots of people, both inside and outside of Christianity, at times have difficulty figuring this out. One of the ways we get far from God as followers of Jesus is when we begin to unplug ourselves in this reality. This heart attitude is the hallmark of all healthy relationship. Remember, a lot of the principles that Jesus gives us about how we can vibrantly relate to his Father are applicable in every relationship we have. Okay? So, for example, uh, if you were to—let's just say you had a friend, okay, and you asked your friend about uh, marital advice. You were really thinking about marrying somebody. You said, I've been dating this person for a couple of years, and I'm at the point where I want to marry them. And the person said, okay, well, uh, tell me a little bit about what's, what's going on here. And you say, well, I, I really want to marry them, but I have this one, this one concern. Uh, they don't ever really want to be around me. I mean, we've been dating like loosely for two years, but she, she or he randomly picks up my phone calls. And, and like on a scale of eight to ten, if I asked them to go out with me eight times, like uh, at, at ten times, eight times, they're just going to say no. But but I'm ready to tie the knot and get this thing wrapped up. right? So you would tell this person like, well, hold up a second. Uh, something seems a little off here because uh, you're, you're with a person who clearly you have a passion for. But, but they don't seem to have any passion for you because, you know, I mean, I'm sure Dr. Phil would agree the person at least has to pick up the phone to express some kind of uh, general interest in you or respond to your text or whatever it is, right? So here you've got this interesting analogy where in, in the context of healthy relationship, we would say uh, this is a huge red flag. Uh, you'd be unwise to say go ahead and just try to tie the knot. Uh, everything seems great there. There's something involved in that that calls into question uh, the authenticity of the relationship entirely. And the same is true with this idea of fruitless or barren branches with God. The hallmark of a fruitless branch is seen in a person's desire to be around the things of God, but not necessarily God himself. This is perhaps one of the most common reasons in the New Testament. And if you have been engaged with other men and women who love God, you'll find that this is a very common story. To a certain degree, um, a person is around the things of God, but they're not necessarily tapped into Jesus the way Jesus explains in the vine branch analogy. So when we think of this dead branch behavior, the first group of people, the most obvious group that come to mind in the New Testament, are probably going to be the Pharisees. I mean, Jesus literally says this about them. They're a group of people unparalleled in their devotion to the rituals of God. They they have what Paul would say, some form of godliness. Yet we know that they had little, if any, genuine love for God. And what we often saw in the New Testament is that their lack of love for God, their primary relationship in, on earth, was often transferred to their lack of love for neighbor. Okay? The two most important relationships on earth, love God, as, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Okay? So it makes sense that we see a callous group of people mis- misaligned in their pursuit of God, then misaligning their love for others. And at times it's just a very cold, callous, disconnected relationship on both ends. They're a great example of what we're talking about here, the kind of dead branches God will cut off from his vine because they, they poorly reflect who Jesus is, the vine of life. So the Pharisees are kind of the common scapegoat example in the New Testament. But we have an even stronger example of this, albeit a more subtle example. It's a person with a hard attitude that is probably much less obvious than the Pharisees, but no less dangerous. And this is probably the one we would be more susceptible to suffer from. In the chronology of John's gospel, keep in mind, we're in Philippians and John, okay? And, and we, we're looking at two passages of Scripture connected to a much larger narrative. So this teaching that Jesus gives us in the gospel of John, the chronology of John's gospel, uh, here Jesus gives us this vine branch teaching on the heels of Judas' betrayal of him. So you've got a pretty interesting thing going on. In the gospel of John, literally, you know, just a couple of minutes ago, uh, oh, probably a couple of hours ago by New Testament standards, uh, we can rightly assume that Jesus is referencing a pretty substantial event. Jesus uh, Jesus, and Judas, one of his disciples, have walked together for a very long time, and Judas just sold them out. And there's a behavioral warning that Jesus is now giving to his disciples about what they just saw. And there is no questioning this when you look at the repetition of the words that Jesus uses throughout the Gospel of John. In John 13.10 and John 15.3, Jesus is telling the disciples that uh, you are clean. And then he gives this interesting caveat. Uh, he says, listen, you're clean, but, but not every one of you is clean. And then he repeats this statement in John 15 when he says, you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So you've got these statements that he's making to a group of disciples that include Judas. And he's, making, he's issuing an acceptance. He's saying uh, a, a, an exception here. He says, listen, all of you are clean except for one. And then Judas betrays him. And then Jesus speaks to his disciples without Judas. And he says, all of you have already been made clean because of the word, the truth has spoken to you. And you've noticed that what we read this morning, he's left out the every everybody uh, except for one of you part is, is missing. Because Judas is no longer with them. And so there's an obvious connection being made here. In the midst of this teaching about fruit bearing faith, the disciples just watched the guy <coughs> with the appearance of faith sell his Messiah out. We watched a guy who essentially had all of the rhythms, the functional rhythms for a season in his his life as of a believer. Yet we found out that uh, at the best case scenario here is it's incredibly questionable whether or not he was a believer. Why? Because here we see that uh, Judas kind of loves the things of God more than he actually loves God. Listen, if you love God deeply, um, you're not going to sell him out for a couple of silver pieces. If you love God deeply... Uh, You might be tempted by these thoughts, but the truth is that it's going to be much more difficult to actually abandon or walk away from your God. To love the things of God is one thing. Perfect example, if you love what God gives you in life, if you love the fact that God is a God who will bless you, then you will love God when he blesses you. But you will walk away from him when he does not. You will walk away from him when the pruning begins, right? There's a difference between loving the God who blesses and loving the God because he blesses. Two incredibly different foundations upon which to pursue a relationship. One adheres your heart to Jesus's. The other connects you to the things that God can do. And your love will be as good as the things God can do. And if you've been a Christian for any season of time, you know that God doesn't always do everything you want him to do. In fact, sometimes he does things that are completely contrary to what we want him to do. You will not love God permanently if you lack a genuine love for him. And it would be wise for us to be aware of the fact that we are all susceptible to having this kind of long-distance relationship with God. And in modern Christianity, it's taken many, many forms. We've seen it in legalism. We've seen it in moralism. We've seen it in self-righteousness. Like, I love God because of, because, not because of who God is and what he's done for me. I just love God because, because I love me, right? Self-insurance. If you were raised uh, in old school Christianity, those of you that maybe were, you know, from kind of infancy to this point in your life, you've been engaged in the Christian faith. You remember this term that flew around for decades called fire insurance. The idea was like, you know, basically you just love Jesus enough so that you can escape hell, and that's a problem, right? Because Jesus wants you to love him all the time. In the modern world today, where people don't even really believe in the eternal punishment of hell anymore, um, we see this new thing that's popped up, this concept of casual Christianity. Like we could just love Jesus when it's convenient and easy, but not necessarily when things get hard. And if you apply that back road theology to Jesus, I mean, could you imagine what would happen if Jesus stopped loving us when things got hard? There wouldn't be a cross. There would be redemption. Uh, we see it in, in modern day hypocrisy. There's lots of things that we can love that God can give us. Or in some of these cases we've talked about, um, we can take things that God gives us. And because we don't genuinely love him, we're a fruitless branch. We can, we can modify them to the place where they're not actually pursuing God anymore. You love the idea of what God can do for you more than what God is or who he is to us. And whatever it is, whatever the distraction, uh, this is why it's so important that God makes this commitment to prune anything that threatens the health of the vine in our lives from him. Or from us, our our relationship in him and the fact that he prunes us is a sign of his love for us. now it might be hard to see Judas' being cut off as love. I mean, if I were to just probably survey a group of people and say, you know Jesus basically left Judas to his own vices at this point in his life, would we see that as love? Well, we might have a hard time understanding it as love, but I'm telling you that that actually is an act of love because Jesus actually He flipped the truth switch for for Judas. This is what we talked about two weeks ago. The Jesus light switch was thrown. And he said, listen, you're not actually in me. And you know this now. You know that you're not in me. There's an opportunity now to actually go and and be in me. And Judas makes a choice. He, He pursues this road of rejection rather than embracing the truth that Jesus gives him. So here's the hard but truthful reality here. And I think it's a very gracious reality is that because Jesus loves Judas enough... He doesn't let him live in the form any longer. He actually says, I want you to really know me. And in order to know me, you have to know that right now you don't know me. And your actions that are about to follow are going to show that. Like the viticulturist who, who lives to ensure the health and the growth of the vine, God lives to ensure the health and the growth of his fruit-bearing people. And that is us. And this is what leads us to the second truth I want to share with you today. First and foremost, you have to see pruning as a mark of love. You have to. Isaiah shows us it's, it's, it's an absence of God's presence in our life. When, when it's not happening. So it's a proactive form of love. You have to know that, but you also have to submit to that. So if you want the fruit of Christ in your life, you must submit your heart to the pruning work of the Father. In other words, is if you recognize the nature of the gardener, okay, that he prunes because he loves us, the next logical step is that we have, to, we have to start seeing what he is communicating to us about, the things he is adding and removing from our lives as a mark of something that is going to help us become more like Jesus. He's got to get the benefit of the doubt in the process. And John fifteen two is where we see this. One of the ways God works his salvation out in our lives is this. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. This is Jesus speaking. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So the idea is that he's both removing uh, and kind of tending the garden so that it will be vibrant and healthy. Now, in Jesus' parable, God the Father is doing two types of pruning. This is kind of how we'll We'll close today. We'll look at these two prunings. The first is he's cutting off every branch that bears no fruit. That's a pretty straight-up statement. And this type of branch, remember, connected to Jesus—I mean, to Judas. Excuse me. This type of branch is referring um, to a dangerous heart attitude that, in the theological world, we call apostasy. The idea here is that you—you you have somebody who has literally—they've um, they, come to Jesus. Okay. You have a person who has, for—for for whatever reason come to Jesus, and then there's this season in their life, um, which in this case might even be a permanent season, uh, where they step away from God. And I want to be very explicit here, because some folks have taken verses like this, as well as other verses that talk about this concept, and they have made them say something that that Jesus is not saying here. Um, Some have taken this verse to mean that a person can truly be connected to Jesus' vine, and then disconnected from Jesus' vine. And what they mean here is that you can like you can receive the grace of Jesus and then lose the grace of Jesus. And uh, you just need to know our church does not adhere to that position. It's not actually a long-term Christian position, meaning if you look at what makes Christianity Christianity, some of our essential beliefs, um, this is one of them, that the authority, and this goes back to that first talk we spoke about, about Jesus' salvation. He gives us salvation, but then we are responsible to shepherd it for the rest of our days. We do not believe that when Jesus says this here, that he's saying, like, you can mess up bad enough to lose his grace. That's not what we're saying. Um, in fact, that creates a very schizophrenic form of Christianity. Uh, the truth is, is that if Jesus' death for you and me was not enough to secure our grace, to secure the love of the Father, um, what, what essentially happens here is, is if we believe we can lose it, we believe Jesus was never powerful enough to, to, to sustain it. That's an issue. So you have to know that grace is grace and love is love. Because Jesus is grace and he is love. However, what we are talking about here is uh, is what happens when a person might embrace a form of godliness that actually never really was a form of godliness. To be in Jesus, John 6 tells us, is to be in Jesus. Once you're in him, you can no longer be unloved by Jesus if it's genuinely a, a, a pursuit in him. Nothing can snatch you from his hand. So this type of dead branch is the person Jesus tells us about in the parable of the soils. How do we know that Jesus isn't saying this here? Well, you have to look at the other places Jesus has taught. And what we know is that Jesus very explicitly tells us there is a type of person uh, who can come in contact with him, can come in contact with his word, can come in contact with his people. And it can really look like a seed of faith takes root in the soil. But over time, what springs up is not secure or stable. Uh, Trial comes or conflict comes or challenge comes or in this case, a bag of silver comes, and what happens is the life is snuffed out of the person. The, the, the root was so weak because it was never genuinely tethered to the vine that, that this person actually does not sustain faith because they never really had faith. This is, the, this is a Judas, the guy who springs up as a disciple, but eventually gets to the place where following Christ costs him something so significantly that he walks away because he's never really rooted in him. Now, I want to say something here, because that sentence I just uttered to you needs to be paired with a comma. And the second type of pruning is going to show you why. The critical thing to know about this type of person is the reason they never come back to God is because they, they, they were never in him to begin with. So it's not Jesus' fault. It's not like Jesus took back what he gave him. Uh, that's, that really is very contrary to the nature and the character of our God. This is a person who never really asked for grace. To them, Jesus is something like a fad, a spirit of the day. Uh, there was no real root. And so Jesus says this person suffers a harsh fate. They're, they're cut off. Essentially, they are, they are an unbeliever at this point. And this, this kind of garners a path of judgment. That's what Jesus tells us later on in John. And so the, the issue or the caveat I want to issue here is an important one because we have, to, we have to be cautious about making final judgments on a person on earth who appears to fall away like this. In Scripture, we have examples of people who fall away like this and never come back to God. And then in Scripture, we have examples of people who fall away like this, but they actually do come back to God because there's a root in them that is substantive. We'll get to King David here in a moment. But the ultimate judgment, the ultimate reason why we can never give up on a person, a metaphorical Judas, is because we can never absolutely 100% perfectly understand, know the nature of that person's heart. We can make some pretty strong estimations based on Scripture But we can never stop being people who love and care for folks who drift away from God. Because at the end of the day, it is only God who without fault knows where the heart is, where they fall in that parable of the soils. Whether it was a fleeting fad or or truly, this is a person who is in Jesus but has fallen on a hard time. And this should really matter in a church like ours that preaches grace. Because what this means is, whether you are this person or you know this person... Um, it's been proven time and time again here that people are going to love you enough to pursue you no matter where you are in life. And I can tell you, um, having pastored this church six years now and having been a pastor for close to 20, um, I honestly think our adherence to this, that we're going to love you no matter where you are, uh, it keeps as many people here as, as it causes us to lose, just being straight up. Because some people eventually are so won over by this because of the evidence of Jesus that it's like magnetic. But other people just can't stand it. They, they are running from God or they don't want to be by God. And what, what happens is the very thought of you loving them in the name of Jesus becomes something that winds up shoving them away. And I don't mean the creepy Christianity metaphor. I mean the fact that a genuine pursuit of people the way Jesus genuinely pursues us, that will be enough to bring people back to Christ. But for some people, it might actually be too much for them. So we can never stop loving is what I'm saying. Because only God knows the true intent of the heart. And that's why what Jesus tells us here is, have you noticed who, who the person with the shears are? Does, we, we don't read here that Jesus says, now all of you, the branches, go do the pruning. That's not what he says. He says, ultimately, my father is the one that does the pruning. So we're not given the shears to prune. We're given the, the command to love. But God, in his infinite wisdom, is the one who is trimming and paring back. So we have to be careful. And the reason we have to be careful and adhere to this is because of the second type of pruning Jesus talks about. The second type of pruning takes place with living branches that have stopped producing fruit for a season. So this is a person who actually is in Jesus, but something has happened, whatever the reasons are, uh, that they stop producing fruit. Maybe it's the winter months. I've talked about this before. Maybe life is gray and gloomy and you lose the understanding of joy and hope and peace. And you start to embrace rhythms that are far from God. Maybe it's temptation. This was Judas' issue, right? Maybe it's sin. Uh, Maybe it's the fickle nature of a fallen heart. Sometimes, let's be honest, we can be far from God on a Tuesday just because it's a pretty rough Tuesday. It could be a rough day, right? Here, what we're talking about here is uh, this is a different root. We're talking about a root here that actually has life. But much like the winter months, it doesn't look like it's producing fruit. Because this is the person who is in Jesus They've just there's a season for whatever the season is. We can't determine that where where they are disconnected from God. And so this is truly the story of King David. He's the best example of this. And anytime we talk about this, I bring him up, because if you were to look at David's life mid mid crises, like when he was essentially you know he had, had an affair with his wife and uh, he had somebody murdered his best friend. If you were to look at David in the middle of that, you would say like this dude is a dead branch. There's no way we would say. This is a guy who loves God. But we do know that he actually did love God. Because if you follow the whole story, there's this incredible place of repentance. There's this place where he comes back to God because he was genuinely in God to begin with. This is the devout God follower who loves God with all their heart, but for whatever reason might have a season of apathy. They get numb in their faith. They fall into some craziness. Uh, And as a result, they step away from God and into something that begins to threaten their relationship with the vine. It is in that situation, and you can see this with David's life, that God's pruning shears come out. Why? Not because he doesn't like David, but because he wants David back. So he begins to create situations in his life where he's, he's pruning, and hardship comes into his life, and grace comes to it, into his life. And at the end of this situation, David's spiritual senses are reawakened. They're awoken again, and he says, I'm back. I, the, the, the Like scales, my craziness has fallen away and I now see you again and I'm sorry. And God does what he always does. He receives him and supports him and he moves forward with him. In both of these instances, whether this is a dead branch from the outset who acted like a living branch or a living branch who for a season acted like they were dead. In both instances, the gardener, God, knows the most productive way to see any vine grow healthily is to prune it regularly. That's the evidence of God's love for us, one of them. Now, I want to say this. It's, it's one thing to hear about this principle. It's an entirely other thing to actually see it happen. And uh, most of you know, we just had a pretty major hurricane hit here about a month ago. And I was reminded of this principle firsthand again. So uh, in the first year of restoration, I shared with you this story. And I want to share it again because it's a vivid reminder of, it's like a seven-year process of this being true. So uh, we bought our first, first home here in Port Orange in 2009, and it was, uh, there was a yard connected to it, like uh, the biggest one I'd ever had. We didn't have a yard in New York, and I had a very small yard in one very small rental house we had in New Orleans. It was like a, a, a patch of grass, and we've been in apartments for most of our lives. So here I actually had some grass and trees and stuff that had to be trimmed, and uh, we bought a home that had actually had some yard neglect. So if you've ever inherited a neglected yard like this, it's kind of the Isaiah passage, like thorns and briars growing and stuff starts going crazy. You're like, wait a minute, was that uh, an elephant in my backyard? It's so overgrown, you're wondering like if you have Sahara-like tendencies back there. There's all of this crazy stuff going on. And so uh, I didn't have a lot of experience with this type of uh, discipline. And for about six months, I was very hesitant to cut anything. I mean, it's unnatural to me to say, if you want something to be healthy, trim it back or cut it. But it got so bad that eventually we had to do this. uh, And it was uh, there was this one particular set of palm bushes, which are still in my yard to this very day. They were filled with dead and drooping branches. And I went out there and addressed a pretty bad situation. Uh, we're getting close to Christmas, so I don't know if you've ever seen the movie A Christmas Story. But it was like that scene when Ralphie's dad went down to deal with the furnace. Right? That's what this situation looked like in the backyard. You're back to cutting and trimming. And I'm, I don't know what it really what I'm doing, but if it's brown, it's gone. And I'm snipping and snipping and snipping. And eventually what happens is, uh, about, about a week later, I see the bush. It's like a miracle. This big palm bush, which was all sagging on the ground, is now like eight foot straight up in the air. could not believe it. And we just had to do this again after the hurricane. We had all kinds of dead stuff. And so, uh, so this bush got trimmed again. All the brown stuff got cut off of it. And here we are now almost, almost eight years later, frankly, and the bush is still eight and a half, nine foot tall uh, because of this principle. This cutting away is actually what helps the bush, this palm bush, to be healthy. And if you are to look at this from the outside, it looks torturous. I mean, there is no way a person in their sane mind could look at somebody with these steel shears just hacking this thing away. It looks like an abusive rhythm for for the bushes and for the branches, whatever they are. However, as bad as it looks, the pruning is actually designed to preserve and prosper the life of the bush, which, as I said, still lives to this day. And so pruning like this, the the life of David, the other people in scripture who fell away from God but come back, pruning is an evidence that God loves us and it is a necessity in our lives. And so I wanna say this, every one of us can likely recall a time, if you've been a believer for a while, you can likely recall a time where God pruned something from you that you thought you had to have. There is a time when a brown limb in your life feels like it is vital and green, but it is not. Maybe it was a boyfriend, or a girlfriend, or a relationship, or a material item, or a job, or a certain set of life circumstances, or your dreams and wishes, whatever they were, you thought that this was the most vibrant branch in your life. And God removed it because, because we can't see what the next 20 years of our life look like. And he took it away, or he pruned it, so that we could actually be healthier in the long run. If we're being honest, right, we can all admit there have been and will be times in our lives where God takes away things we don't want to give up, where things that we think are vital um, are actually robbing us of our life. I bet if you were to have talked to David in the midst of that circumstance with Bathsheba, he'd have thought that was a pretty legitimate thing. The passions there would have been so strong that he could not have logically disconnected himself from them. But there is a point where he comes to the reality that what he thought was life was actually robbing him of life because of God's grace. So this is why life change, this principle, is important. God always knows what is and isn't vital, always. And although it might hurt sometimes, he doesn't make mistakes in this area. We can make mistakes in this area. He does not. He always knows what limb to cut and where to prune it and where to invest something into our lives. He never makes mistakes here. At times, this type of life change can feel like it's cruel and it might even seem random. Uh, Sometimes it seems relentless because he's removing those dead branches from your heart. And it feels like something very important to you has been removed. But those who are in Jesus, I'm telling you guys, you have to train your heart to know nothing is ever random or cruel in the way that God deals with us and in the way that he brings about change in us. There is no coincidence with God. There is purposeful meaning in everything that he does. What he does in pruning, could, it, it, it is exactly what we need when we need it. Everything is purposeful, precise and designed to reveal who God is to us and 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 who we are to in Jesus to the world. What he does is for his glory and for our good. And so the bottom line when it comes to pruning like this is you've got to give God the benefit of the doubt while it's happening because he always does it for your own good and he does it because he loves you. And you know the the, the theology of the cross is so central to everything we do and say here that we can back this idea right back up to it. And the people observing the cross would have said this too. You think the people watching Jesus being crucified got the fact that this was actually for their own good? This looked like a heinous, disconnected murder in the first century world. But the truth is that God saw the long term in that. And it was through that act. It was through that, man, you talk about pruning, through God sacrificing his own son's life, that we sit here today, 2,000 years later, speaking and proclaiming and singing about the grace of our risen Savior. So as we think about this, I want us to recognize we have to give God the benefit of the doubt in the way that he works. So don't make the mistake of seeing uh, every hardship, right, every loss, every pain in your life as some direct result of God not caring about you or not loving you. You also need to know that there are some times where where there might even be circumstances happening in our lives that are not even of the hand of God. None of us here are exempt from common suffering. Right? None of us here are exempt from the fact that we can be involved in circumstances where people do unjust things to us, where things happen in our lives that are the consequence of, of unfair systems. Or sometimes we can do things in our lives that bring this upon ourselves. I mean, you know, this thing with David and even Judas, uh, some of this is the reaction of, of, their, of their behavior. What they did was just not good. So you have to be careful that you don't approach this like Job's friends did in the Old Testament, where they looked at his life circumstances, and the first thing they did was they started blaming God for, it was almost a malicious character. They said, man, you must have screwed up. God must really be angry at you. God must really be kind of in the mood to torture you. This is the idea of what he's saying. His friends are saying, you've done something so bad here, even though he had done nothing wrong, that God is just like up there a little bit ornery on Tuesday, and he's going to hurt you. We know at the back end of that story that Job's friends, their guidance was some of the most misguided on earth. So I'm telling you, be careful when you look at pruning. Because uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes it is the direct hand of God purposely pruning you. That could be the case, but it could also not be the case. And you want to make sure that you don't develop a malicious understanding of who God is. But either way, whether it is the direct hand of God or just somebody in your workplace who's making your life very difficult, What God does tell us here, what Jesus does tell us, is that that pruning can come from both angles. And God can redeem in a reprehensible situation for us to understand who he is more deeply and to grow in his grace. His grace is enough no matter what the source of it is. So as we close this morning, I want to leave you with what I opened you with. I want you to take a couple of times in our response this morning to ask yourself what side of the needle point you are looking at when it comes to your Father in heaven. When you think of his shears and when you think of pruning... Do you spend your day seeing God as some malicious dictator who is just like he, he is he is in existence to take away everything you think you need? Do, do you see the validity of God pruning branches from your life at times? Have you read verses like this? And do you see God as graceless and cold through them? A God just randomly doing stuff because he doesn't care about you because he can because he's God. Or do you, have you come to the place where you recognize his shears are designed to, they're designed to steer the unbeliever away from judgment and the believer into a deeper level of love for Jesus? Because once you properly understand God's pruning grace, you're going to have a hard time getting mad about it, hurt by it or not trusting it. You might not always agree with it on the front end. You might not even like it. But the benefit of the doubt has to go to God. Because eventually what happens is what seem like random disconnected knots, cut off strings that make no sense... If you start understanding God's grace in your life, you can see that he's actually painting a pretty amazing picture called the story of your life for the rest of your days. And it is a story built on hope and joy and peace and purpose and everlasting meaning and worth. So don't see the knots, see the picture. Because Jesus tells us in John 15:8 and 11, fast forwarding a little bit, all of these things we've talked about this morning, he says, all of this is to my father's glory that you, this is us, that you and I would bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples fruit is an evidence of the disciple and he says i have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete he doesn't say i've told you this because i don't care about you i'm pruning you because it's hurtful he says i'm doing this so that your joy in me would be complete your joy would be unassailable so this morning as we move towards response time ask yourself do you have a life that's bearing fruit um ask yourself Ask God to show you what dead branches in your heart might need to be pruned. What do you need to get rid of? Believe in Jesus for the first time or believe in him more deeply. But in all of this, trust God with your life and its circumstances because he loves you and he cares for you and his grace is evidenced through his pruning in you. He does this because he loves you. And he will answer that prayer, I promise, because he has promised us he would. Ask yourself, when it comes to Jesus working out, his salvation in your life with fear and trembling. What is he saying to you and what are you going to do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this day and thank you for, for grace. It comes to us in many ways and measures, but here we learn about grace through pruning. And so I do pray, Lord, this morning that as we think about this concept and we pray about this through a little bit of response time, that you would actually speak to us now. You've heard a lot this morning through worship and the teaching of the word, but it's our prayer right now that for these next couple of minutes, as we have this, this time of, of quiet meditation and contemplation, that you would genuinely speak to our hearts. Show us who we are in you and the way you are working in our lives by pruning. In God's name and grace and in the name of his son, Jesus, we pray this morning. Amen.